if Friday the 13th is a jinx for some people, for President and Chief Operating Officer of the New Jersey Rockets, Ed Tepper, it is a blessing. Ed, everything we do tonight, you realize, is going to be a first. The first kick, the first penalty, etc. But you have got to be thrilled with the spanking new Brandenburg Arena and your spanking brand new team. It's really unbelievable. And I'm not superstitious anymore. No, I think that when we open up Friday the 13th, everyone said, don't do it. But I said, it's better than Monday the 16th. But we're so excited. The fans in New Jersey, New York, have supported us like this. Uh, it's just amazing how they love MISL soccer. We never knew it. And give us a kind of a thumbnail sketch of how this team came to be. The New Jersey Rockets, a new name in the world of sports, from uh, inception to tonight, opening night. When I found the league with Earl Foreman, I was entitled to a franchise. And uh, I was going to take Philadelphia, naturally, is my hometown. And I decided to wait and work with the league and with Earl. And came to talk with Sonny Werblin, and uh, I guess it was about three years ago. And we spoke about Meadowlands, and I love what they were doing here. And finally, I broke away from the league, came here, put together a good group of local investors, and uh, found the name Rockets for my little boy, Jimmy. Is that right? Yes. Your son suggested it? My son suggested it, and uh, here we are tonight. The New Jersey Rockets. Sounds right. new. And as we look around the Brendan Byrne Arena, speaking of little boys named Jimmy, I'm sure there are a lot here tonight. A lot of family crowd here tonight, Ed, and I think perhaps one of the reasons for that is that soccer, not indoor necessarily, but just the sport of soccer very wisely, got the mummies and the daddies and the kiddies interested. Well, I disagree on one point. I think it's indoor that has done it. I think that indoor has become the spectator sport where mom and dad can come with the kids. They will go anywhere to watch the kids play if the kids play. But, it, but, but when mom and dad goes outdoor, that's why outdoor has not worked as a spectator sport. But indoor is where mom and dad and the kids can get together and really enjoy it together. And that's one of the reasons why I put my time and effort into indoor soccer, because I felt that in this country, that's the way soccer should be, uh, should be for the fans. Ed, a final question for you. Uh, Shep Messing refers to the game as the skills of soccer played on a pinball machine. I kind of like that analogy. You do see the skills of soccer with perhaps some hockey thrown in. Uh, in many different ways and the added excitement that Americans are used to. The most amazing thing is what you say is all true, but you'll see about 60% 60, 60 basketball. The pick and rolls, the different zones, uh, there's a lot of basketball strategy in this game. And as it goes on and on and the coaches keep getting better and better, uh, we notice the basketball is, is a big part of this game. And of course there is hockey and the shorthanded and uh, uh, the other thing, too, and Shep is the best at it, which is that long pass, which is the bomb, and he can throw it, and, or the short pass, and uh, whatever Shep Messing says, I'll always agree with anyway. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, here we go. Let's rev up the engines. We're uh, we're going back into the major indoor soccer league. Our our friends in the MISL, the Rocket Red Ball, bouncing all around. Hi there, my name's Tim Hanlon, and it's uh, good seats still available. Yeah, it's our curious little uh, podcast journey each and every week, if you can believe it, into what used to be in professional sports. And there's there's no better used to be. Uh, exploration that we could uh, probably ever do than the old MISL. It's just, uh, it's the story that keeps on giving. And um, we are honored uh, to have as our guest this week, uh, the guy that you heard interviewed in that uh, clip just a couple of seconds ago. His name is Ed Tepper, and he was one of the co-founders of the MISL back in the uh, mid to late 1970s uh, with his uh, attorney, 
slash sports entrepreneur friend, uh, Earl Foreman. And uh, we have a, a great conversation coming up uh, where we go back in time into the uh, proverbial way back machine into the uh, beginnings of of this uh, crazy sport uh, known as uh, indoor soccer uh, that Ed and Earl and a few other folks, as you hear mentioned in our in our chat, uh, literally kind of created from scratch a, a bunch of sort of uh, uh, precursors, as we'll talk about the uh, the old North American Soccer League with some experimentation uh, uh, playing some exhibitions and and in particular uh, an exhibition uh, between uh, the uh, then champion North American Soccer League outdoor Philadelphia Adams uh, playing a game against a, a team of Russian All Stars uh, in uh, in the uh, early winter of 1974. You're going to hear how crucial that game was uh, to uh, to all of it. Uh, Ed Tepper. Uh, having been, uh, uh, still is actually a real estate uh, mogul uh, in commercial real estate in the Philadelphia metropolitan area. Actually, at the time when he was watching this uh, this exhibition game in the Spectrum, courtesy of his pal Ed Snyder, the uh, the founder and the uh, the operator of the Philadelphia uh, Flyers, uh, was at the time Tepper was Ed Tepper was uh, running a team in the National Lacrosse League, the in the original indoor version box lacrosse league. 1974, 75-ish, uh, the Philadelphia Wings. We've talked about them before, but as you'll hear in our conversation, uh, this uh, this thing called indoor soccer really got his attention uh, to the point where he kind of said, you know, I'm not sure this box lacrosse thing is uh, it's where it's at. I, I might want to gravitate towards this soccer thing. And uh, it's a very interesting story, and you're going to hear all about it uh, and all the twists and turns along the way. The, uh, the ownership of the uh, 1976 version of the outdoor Philadelphia Adams uh, as part of that, uh, the North American Soccer League and its sort of uh, disdain for and then sudden, again, interest in uh, the indoor game after having, frankly, pioneered it uh, in uh, various exhibitions in the years prior. Uh, the uh, the wild and woolly uh, startup uh, uh, months and, and years of the MISL and, and, and boy, what a what a, a rocket ship that was. Uh, and, uh, of course, we're going to get into uh, the uh, formation in year four of the MISL of the uh, legendary, at least in my mind, because I was a season ticket holder, if you can believe it, one of a handful of the New Jersey Rockets. Uh, and that's the clip that you just heard from Sports Channel, if you remember that, uh, in the uh, New York metropolitan area. And uh, what you heard was uh, an interview with uh, a, a very excited and uh, uh, anticipatory uh, owner and president of uh, this New Jersey Rockets franchise, our guest this week, the great Ed Tepper. And uh, we're going to get to that chat in uh, in just a minute or two as uh, we uh, remind you that uh, today's episode is sponsored by our friends at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. And uh, our friend Dean Mitchell and his friends in San Diego. Uh, and of course, geez, why wouldn't we like to be in San Diego right now, especially in the uh, the doldrums of winter here and all the snow and ice and cold here in the uh, suburban Chicago area. But uh, I digress. It's just not going to happen. But we can be whisked away uh, to the goodness that Dean and his friends have for us all at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. If you want memorabilia, especially from teams and leagues, various franchises, etc., no longer with us or previously incarnated, this is this this is the be the best place to go. It's sportshistorycollectibles.com and and you're going to see there a a great and amazing curation of of amazing stuff uh that uh you just uh, desperately will want after you see the great photography 
uh, and uh, and all the little uh, uh, descriptions of all the items. It's it's better, frankly, than anything you're going to find on eBay. And uh, uh, Dean and his team have uh, meticulously uh, curated and crafted a, a great site f- chock full of treasures. Uh, and in particular, you want to check out their major indoor soccer league collection of great stuff. I believe there's even, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think there's actually a New Jersey Rockets pennant in pristine uh, condition there uh, for uh, for those folks wanting to uh, have a bit of that uh, on their on their walls to remember the the uh, good old MISL. And of course, uh, either in the MISL section or anywhere else for that matter on SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, once you find uh, a treasure that you just need to have. By all means, make sure that you use the promo code GOODSEATS at checkout, and you will get 15% off all of your purchases. And again, at sportshistorycollectibles.com, make sure you use the promo code GOODSEATS, and you will get 15% off all of your purchases. And uh, we thank Dean and his friends there for uh, all of the great support of the show. Thank you to sportshistorycollectibles.com. All right, let us uh, push that promotional message aside and let us segue nice and smoothly, shall we, into our great conversation with our new pal, Ed Tepper. Yes, the great Ed Tepper, one of the co-founders and the originators of the old MISL. And here's our chat we had just a couple of days ago. Why were you even involved or interested in soccer in the first place? Right? I mean, were you basically known around town as sort of, you know, a, a successful real estate guy with money and, and then ideas came to you or, or were you involved in the sport at all? Or, you know, had you seen it on television? Like, I'm just curious as to like even how you and soccer got into the same room, even before all of this well, stuff. I guess the answer to that question is I was in Toronto in the course of the meeting. And Ed Snyder called me, and he said, I don't know when you're coming home, but try to come home tonight. He said, there is a indoor soccer game being played in the spectrum, and I want you to see what it's like on AstroTurf. It had nothing to do with the game. I was coming back to see because, you know, it was played on you know, a plywood floor. So anyway, when I saw the AstroTurf, it was great, but I liked the game. I liked the game. Because you could see the ball. It was something that I just fell in love with the game. But this all started, though, So, but you mentioned lacrosse, right? So you were you were actually an owner or a, a major uh, presence in what was then the uh, National Lacrosse League in 1974 in Philadelphia? Is that why you were in Toronto? I, uh, yes, I owned the Philadelphia Wings. I knew that the, I thought indoor soccer had a better potential. And then of course, you know, for the fans, as far as seeing the ball and Americanizing the game and so on. So that sort of got me started. And uh, I ended up selling the wings. And I ended up uh, working on the Adams <laughs> for a season, which was a joke. Before we before we get to that, so so maybe you can maybe back up for a second. How did you get involved in the wings in the first place? Because I, I suspect that this is kind of your first taste of professional sports, right? Now, I, I got a call from Lou Schoenfeld from the Spectrum. And uh, he said, you know, that there are a couple guys who are promoting a league for the cross. He said, would you be interested? And I said, yeah, you know, I'll talk to him. And, uh, and that's how I got started. So I went from the cross to soccer. And your interest in... 
uh, in going and seeing that uh, that spectrum game, right, was because of the turf, right? Because you were more you were more interested in in sort of seeing uh, how maybe astroturf could be a better playing surface than say what I guess you said plywood or or maybe even worse for the lacrosse players, right? Yeah, and we put we just put plywood over the ice and painted green. And you know we're going back forty years. To, you know, uh, astroturf was was new, uh, especially indoors. You know, astroturf was not used indoors at that time. Today, of course, it's you know it's a different ballgame. All right. Well, let's let's talk about sort of this uh, this game. So you're saying that Ed Snyder, who was the owner uh, at long time of the uh, Philadelphia Flyers, obviously legendary uh, NHL franchise, he was kind of the guy who tipped you off to this. What I guess indoor soccer exhibition. What, what how was it described to you, and and how did you sort of make haste to get there to sort of see this at his recommendation? Well, first of all, he invited me for dinner if I flew in, and then we would go and we would watch this game indoor soccer. There were thirteen thousand two hundred people, right, in the stands for this game for a game that's never been played. But that wasn't my purpose. My purpose was to uh, see if I could apply the AstroTurf to to, uh, to lacrosse. And this game we're talking about is on uh, uh, Jan- excuse me, February 11th, 1974. And we're at, this is the spectrum. And this is between the uh, then champion, right, the 1973 outdoor champion NASL Philadelphia right. Adams, coached by Al Miller, and a team known as what? The Red Army team. Maybe you can give... Um, so I, how much did you know about this game going into it? And uh, at what point was it during the game or, or shortly thereafter where your original intention of going to that game, i.e. turf and lacrosse, kind of changed into, wait a minute, maybe there's something to this soccer thing instead? That's exactly what it was. And, and you know, it's funny because after the game, uh, I went downstairs at the spectrum, and I spoke to some of the Adams players, and they had no idea how to play indoor soccer, <laughs> you know. And they were playing the Russian team, I believe. But you know, it, it's like everything in, in life; one thing adds to another. And today, today, there's oh, I can't tell you me how many millions of kids are playing indoor soccer because of what we created. That's the big thing. You, you know, I'm, I'm, I know that you're, you're working on the league, you know, on, on the franchise, which is great. But the kids are playing. They're all playing. And uh, they play outdoor. They're you know, doing no good, good weather, and they play indoor when the weather changes. And they know the indoor game. They... Uh, they know the line changes. They know uh, the goalie, for example. God, he stopped 60 shots a game. So, and, and the kids love to play indoor soccer today. And it's I'll never know for anything. That's what I created. I created a sport, a sport for the kids. Well, and a, a frenetic game for sure. And uh, you, I, I encourage all of our listeners to, to search up on YouTube. There is actually video of that game. There's no sound. But if you look at it, it's um, 
uh, you know, and you have to also put this in context, right? So you're talking about, you know, February of 1974 or so. Um, you know, this is the first time this is sort of ever, this is an exhibition by all, you know, by all accounts. But it's really interesting to sort of see the reaction of the crowd uh, into this game that, that number one, the Adams have never played indoors before. Number two, I suspect that the Russian, the Moscow Red Army team probably was unfamiliar with this as well. But boy, oh boy, it looked like it was a hell of a lot of fun. What, what was it like in that in that that stadium that day? I mean, just it, nobody seemed to know what they were in for, right? Well, you know what it is? It's like Ed said to me. He said, you could see the ball. You're on top of the action. He says, you know, this is the way soccer is going to sell uh, in this country. Because, um, you know, a one nothing game or zero zero okay. Afterwards, you know, we couldn't relate to it. You know, today the outdoor players are... Uh, are so good that that kind of is a little more scoring. But indoor scoring, you know, it's uh, it's constant scoring. All right, so you're at this game and you see the excitement. So so what happens during and after this game that gets you excited enough? Like, what are your next steps, right? Do you say, well, I got to get out of lacrosse and into soccer? Is it, is it? Well, I want, okay, I'm sorry. I wanted out of the course anyway, you know, because I knew that the, the league was weak. And, uh, <laughs> you love this. We used to fly the players in from Peterborough on, uh, on the two engine plane or something. And then fly them back afterwards. You know, you know it was marginal at best. Even though I, I, I do, you know, it, I, yeah, my crowds were big, basically because the fires were hot, and uh, you know, and, and I got a couple of fighters on the team, and the Philadelphia Flyers love fighting, so you know, it all worked out. But uh, I guess, I guess, it was Ed that pushed me the way he said, "You know what? If, if you want to be in sports, look into this indoor soccer," and that's what I did. So this Ed you're talking about is, of course, the legendary and uh, unfortunately, just uh, we just recently lost uh, Ed Foreman. Um, maybe you can talk about, excuse me, Ed, Earl Foreman, of course. If you could maybe give us some sense of, of, of who he is and was in all of this and and perhaps maybe how the seeds of you and Earl kind of taking this eye opening experience and, and actually making it sort of into something uh, of a reality, a league. Well, you know, Earl it, uh, was his brother-in-law, right? He owned the Virginia Squires. At one time, he owned an outdoor uh, soccer team. He, he was he was an attorney by trade, uh, and he owned a piece of the Philadelphia Eagles at one time. So, so Earl had an excellent sports background, and again, I said, you know, if I do this. You know, I, I do it with somebody, you know. And Earl was the, he was the ingredients. I mean, it happened on America. Uh, I went down to Washington, and I said, God, if I could sell Earl in this game, I, I think we could sell anybody. And that's what happened. So how do you go from this this game and this excitement into, like, what do you, how do you even start, right? So it seems to me that, you were not the only ones that maybe sort of saw something beyond just a one-game exhibition out of all this, right? There was the North American Soccer League, the Outdoor League, which was arguably coming back from the dead, right? The 73 Adams 
Wright had uh, you know won the championship and and the Philadelphia Adams team had done pretty well in their first year uh, at the gate as well. Uh, but you also had a few other folks that were kind of stirring around. How, how did, you knew you had an idea, and arguably you knew you had a, a compatriot in in Earl Foreman. How do you just you know how, what? How do you mechanically go through the, the the process of trying to will a league into being, let alone a sport? Well, there was a fellow by the name of Rick Wagone, who unfortunately died at a young age, and uh, the Spectrum people had had him contact me. He, he had the idea too of indoor soccer, but what Earl and I created is that to put a league together in a sport that nobody knows. I mean, you know, you could call it anything you want, but uh, it, it had no history. It had no history. And uh, what we decided to do in putting a league together is that we went out and we got the arenas involved. And it's like real estate. If you want to build a building, you better get a good location and you better have to tie it up. And what we did is we tied up six arenas plus a, a few other people came in. It's like Joey Weintraub. And, you know, they took options. And that's what started it. You know, uh, we had these arenas that are basically working for us to put a lid together because they needed, they needed product. They needed product. And they liked the concept. Okay. And, you know, there was a guy by the name of Walt Chisowitz, who, who, who Earl and I went on board. He was the national team coach, and he died young, too. And he's sitting in my office, and I said, Walt, if there's going to be a game, you got to get the scissor kick, and you got to get the head shot. And, you know, you just can't play a game at four three high. And he said to me, what's the size of the wall behind you, behind your desk? And we measured it. You know, I had somebody come in and measure it. And that's how I came to 6'6 six, six by uh, 12. And, and, that's, and that's what created the, uh, the size. Uh, we used a red ball. We tested that out on TV. We... Uh, we did a lot of stuff on, uh, let's see, on the ground. You know, uh, we knew that we had to tie up the arenas. Then we knew that we had to go out and get the best American player. And the one that was known was Chet Messing, who I'm still friendly with today. Chet's a great guy. And we signed him. Earl and I signed Chet Messing. He didn't know what team he was going to play for, but we signed him up. So we could make the announcement that Chet Messing is leaving the MASL and he's going with the MISL. And uh, then at, at that point, it was just a matter of if we could go through a season and test the market, uh, that would be great. At, but the outdoor, did you ever see an outdoor game in, in those days? Oh, my God. Yeah, sure. It was a season ticket holder for the New York Cosmos from, uh, I don't know, 78 oh until God. 84 as a kid. Oh, my God. Sure. Oh, my God. Well, let me tell you something. I don't know about the Cosmos because they were special. 
but you had to have two American players on your team, and one had to be on the field all the time. Is that something? It's a, it's, they tried to Americanize the game, and you had to have two American players, and one had to be. So it, it was all foreign players. So what we decided we're going to do is we're going to use American players. And I'm going to tell you something. The players were so happy to participate because, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they became, uh, they became rock stars. <laughs> so getting the players was not difficult. The coaches were great that I, that we started with. They, they were very, very loyal to Earl and I. Uh, the referee, Joe Macknick, in, in particular, uh, who could, uh, he headed our refereeing department. Uh, so we were able to put all the right place, the right pieces in place. Well, let, let, let's, ba- let, let's, let's back up for a quick second. So you, you mentioned a couple of sort of competing entities. So I'm really curious as to how you and Earl were the ones that kind of, kind of got to the marketplace first. You mentioned, uh, Rick Ragone, and I guess his, his buddy Norm Sutherland with this this idea called Major Soccer League uh, that right. really kind of never really got off the ground, but but you're hinting at was already making some inroads. And then uh, obviously we we kind of alluded to the NASL and some of their early tournaments, right? Some of which you you saw, uh, but there was also this thing uh, which uh, and I'm I'm dying to talk to uh, to Jerry Saperstein about at some point called the Super Soccer League. And my understanding, if I if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. That was that kind of like the chief sort of competitor or, or uh, set of people that were kind of maybe challenging or, or threatening to challenge you to get uh, out into the uh, into the world first. I think they were working with Dennis Murphy, right? And how do you go and sell a franchise? What we were selling is we were selling an arena lease. We were selling a refereeing for. We were selling the whole package. Okay. And what those guys would do is we met with them, and they're super guys, super soccer, super guys, but they did not have the ingredients. And they would tell you uh, XYZ's in the league, but nobody's in the league until you have their money. You know? So, you know, they worked hard at it. And um, then I think that's a fellow's name that was starting a, a summer league. And uh, that's that's another thing that that uh, uh, the arenas would have loved us to play during the summer because they had empty dates. But people don't go into arenas. Did you ever consider that as as a, as a starting point, or were you always thinking about winter? We did a lot of research here online to find out that it has to be the winter. It has to be the winter because. That's when people could go inside. That's when the kids will go inside to play the game. That was that was it. You know, I don't think we ever gave it a second thought after that. Yeah, it's ironic, and we we were uh, we're hoping to talk to Ronnie Weinstein at some point soon about the old That's, right, the old CISL right, which which came sort of out of the embers of of the old MISL and 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 was sort of a renewed effort, but uh, ironically with this idea of filling the summertime. Uh, with the indoor game that that I, obviously you guys had pioneered uh, years on, so it's a very but it's very interesting. So, but you're kind of hinting though. Let me ask you this particular question, right? So you're saying the whole package, say versus the 
shall we say, the Dennis Murphy, Jerry Saperstein uh, history, shall we say, of, of, of willing uh, uh, challenger leagues into being, right? And there's a long legacy of those kinds of things, right? Um, did you ever consider or was this originally conceived as a single entity or was this always sort of a franchise kind of arrangement from the beginning or how did you sort of see the business model, I guess is the question. If I were starting the league today, it would be a single entity. But uh, in those days, you know, I, I didn't know too much about single entity. Yeah, I did it. Look, it's like everything else. You have to be financed. And, uh, you know, the point where you got to get lucky. And, and we got lucky because when we put all the right people, Joe Mackin was fantastic. Walt Chiswick was fantastic. Bob Wessler was was great for us. I mean, I mean, we had good people in the right positions, and uh, and that helps because if you're a money man and if you want to go out and you want to uh, make an investment, you want to know what you're investing. In. Do you remember who you went to first uh, in that investment circle? Like who, who, like how, who, who, who were you and Earl sort of uh, looking at on the short list to kind of from an arena and/or potential owner perspective? Like, like how do you even begin? I've been my Ben Alexander, who always wanted the Philadelphia franchise, and he made a commitment to us. And then, it's all by my John Luciani and Bernie Roden made a commitment to us for New York. And uh, I'm just trying to think of some of the yeah, some of the early people. But you know, Tim, you're right. You need one or two people that say, you know, he's in or he's or he put up his money. But uh, and then, you know, we you know, we ended up with we got P Gross. And later on we we got Stan Musial. You know, we got some some good names. When did you know during that process when you were, you know, selling the idea and looking sort of for that bit of luck, so to speak, right? Was was the Shep Messing signing, was that a credibility boost that then begat an investor or, or had you gotten a number of investors and you just needed a, a kick of credibility by bringing in Shep? Like sort of what was the what do you remember what sort of came first to become kind of the catalyst to know that you had that you were on your way? Shep Messing. Definitely Shep Messing. Because, look, anyone could have an idea, okay, and they go out to sell it, and they're just selling their idea to someone else. But we have the ability to have Shep with us, and and, and Bob Wessler with us, and Will Chiswick, may rest in peace, and, uh, and, and Doug Berg. <laughs> Forget Doug. So, so we put together what I thought was a great organization, and plus the fact if somebody was interested in uh, the Cleveland franchise, let's say, we we could turn them on to the arena people in Richfield Coliseum. So they were doing the selling course because they needed to tenant. So our concept of how to sell it, uh, if I can compare it to anything, is compared to uh, to real estate. That's interesting. All right. So, so how do you romance somebody like Shep Messing, right? So, so just, you know, for our audience, right? So Shep was sort of this uh, American soccer superstar, right? One of the very few American soccer superstars up until that point, right? And uh, with the Cosmos and, and had gone 
after a 1977 NASL championship with the Cosmos to uh, become the star attraction for the Oakland Stompers of 1978 out on the West Coast um, for the outdoor season of 78. How do you, first of all, like why Shep versus, say, other players? And then number two, how do you even, how do you convince him that this is the thing to do for him and for you? You know, Shep. Uh, we have uh, reached out to Shep. We have a, a number of inquiries. Uh, for whatever reasons, he's a bit reluctant to do this show thus far, but we'll, we'll hopefully we'll, we'll get him at some point. But uh, certainly having seen him as a player, of course, and knowing uh, his, uh, his vast history, he's a, a, a wonderful talent and player and personality for sure. He, he is. He's amazing. He really did. He graduated Harvard. Uh, I'll give you an example of Shep. Shep wrote a book. Okay, and Ron and I had a meeting at Madison Square Garden with uh, Jack Crumpy, Mike Burke, and Sonny Worland. You know those three names, right? Certainly. Right, and we walked into the conference room, and we we put Shep's book down for them to read. You know, we got Shep was a oh, what's that word? He did a good job promoting Shep Message. Even to this day, he is terrific. Um, and he was he was a great, great diplomat for for, uh, for, uh, for indoor soccer. He loved the game. He was great at the game. Really good at the game. And uh, I don't know how happy he was, I shouldn't say, and, you know, with the NASL. But but we knew, uh, we knew that once we had Shep, you know, on board, you know, that it would be a big coup for us. All right, so you get Shep on board. You got the you got the uh, the arrows sort of uh, in place with John Luciani and and friends in Long Island. Uh, how do you circle the other five franchises? Why six to start? Uh, were you in a race against the Super Soccer League to get up and running uh, in 1978? Were you? Uh, did you want to? Maybe start a little bit later. Or did you want to have more teams? What was sort of the final sort of months leading up to getting launched for the first time? We never looked at them as competition. We, you know, they're great guys. They were. Uh, we wished them luck. You know, we we were putting an organization together. They were out with Dennis Murphy selling franchises. What were they selling? You know what I'm saying? What were they selling? We were selling a an arena lease. Right? We're selling Earl Foreman. We're selling Chef Messing. You know, we had we had we had a great uh, a great group, uh, and it worked out well. And once you sell one, like for instance, Ben Alexander, Ben Alexander's on the phone calling somebody else. Yeah, so, all right, so we're talking six teams, right? you got Philadelphia, you got uh, the New York Arrows, uh, you got Cleveland, you've got Pittsburgh, uh, and who else? you got Philadelphia? Right, and Houston. And Houston, Houston Summit Soccer. So uh, why those six? Were you, did you want more? Uh, and uh, I suspect that you wanted more than six, but, or did you think that that was just good enough to start? Well, let me tell you, you know, how touch and go it was. The NASL was going to play indoor soccer. And the people we were talking to, it made it very difficult because they saw, you know, 
he saw them as soccer in his country. And there was a press conference. Oh, and we had Schnitzer from, uh, from Houston. And he says he'll come in if the NASL doesn't come in. Okay? And we felt, a few of them felt the same way. You know, they didn't want that competition. So after a league meeting, there was a press conference. And somebody said to Phil Wiesman, are you going to play indoor soccer? And he says, not this year, next year. And Houston became our sixth team. It can only arena, you know. It worked out good for uh, That's interesting. because So uh, it sounds to me, tell me if I'm wrong here, that the NASL was only, shall we say, newly interested in pursuing indoor soccer because of your efforts and the Super Soccer League guys and, and Rick Rangone and his f- folks kind of rattling around with the, the notion and or the, the activity around productizing indoor soccer. Is that, is that a fair statement? I met with Phil Wiesman, right? And I said, Phil, look, I could get all the arenas, you know, actually because of that Snyder and so on. And, and I can make these, these available. And you could go and each team could establish American players who could develop into your, you know, outdoor game. And we could work together on this, right? And Phil wouldn't do it, you know? He, you know, he felt that uh, uh, as soccer was nervous, you know, he should have done it. All right. That's, so, so let me back up for a second. That's that's really interesting. So you're you're telling me that as part of your startup uh, thoughts and, and actions, that there was a I don't know an olive branch or at least a conversation with Phil Woosnam and the NASL about possibly either partnering or or being perhaps the indoor uh, a version, shall we say, of the NASL. And he famously or maybe not so famously said, no thanks. That's right. That's exactly right. And the owners in that league that I knew, like George Storbridge and uh, Joe Robbie, they liked indoor soccer. They liked my idea. You know, let's work together. All I really wanted out of it, believe it or not, was, was the full option franchise. This is before, you know, we started to, to sell it. Yeah, so this is interesting because, remember, I, so this is the, this is a very interesting turning point, right? Because the NASL, you know, for, for those soccer historians, right, uh, the had experimented with indoor tournaments and, and, and one-offs, right? You, you were even mentioning, uh, and you can see some of the old photos, and we'll have some of those on our on our website when we post this episode. Uh, the, you know, the goals that you mentioned before, um, you know, if you imagine a hockey rink, right, Actually, are, 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 there's, there's boards or, or plywood board that sort of comes out near the end zones, if you will, uh, to kind of cr- create or project out a, uh, a a relatively narrow and not very high sort of low goal that you were alluding to before. You know, I, I used to have pictures of that. I don't know where they are now. Oh, yeah. And, and, and but, you know, one of those innovations that you guys brought into the mix was to actually recess the goal as well as enlarge it into the actual back of the of the dasher boards, right, to sort of increase the field size to that of, of that being a full hockey rink. Um, but it, but it's, it's just very interesting. I mean, the NASL, in many respects, was very much, ironically, a pioneer of this indoor game. And you're mentioning George Strawbridge, an owner of the Tampa Bay Rowdies, right? You know, they, they were probably among the more active 
uh, franchises playing and experimenting and exhibiting. I used to go to all Georgia's indoor games, you know, George and Doug Rogers. We're friends of mine. They're from Philadelphia. But I'll, I'll tell you something. <laughs> when when the U.S. Sports Network, that's the problem was her, sold our games or gave our games around the country, our playoff games, one of the highlights was somebody who did a scissor kick in his damn excuse And whoever you heard to this, play that again. You know, you could call it a bicycle kick. That's something that the average person can't do. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's an art. And I want to thank them. That helps all franchises. All right, we're going to take a quick, brief pause. And uh, we want to remind you that our friends at Audible uh, are offering to you, our listeners, an opportunity to get a free audiobook download uh, from their amazing array of over 190,000 titles to choose from. Uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats, and that's the place to go to get your free audiobook download, courtesy of us and Audible. Uh, and uh, it's just something you can cancel at any time and you can uh, keep the book for as long as your device uh, exists. And like I said before, there's just a ton of choices uh, available to you to burn up that free credit, uh, including a bunch in the realm of our forgotten sports little genre here, uh, including uh, in the realm of basketball. If you fancy yourself a fan of the old ABA, for example, uh, two great books on the great Julia Serving that might be uh, worth uh, uh, using your credit for. One, of course, is the uh, uh, the Rise and Rise of Julia Serving. It's called Doc, and it's written by Vincent Malazzi and uh, narrated by David Cromet. You could use your credit for that book. Uh, and it's a great sort of uh, interview uh, style uh, uh, background on the uh, life and times of Dr. J uh, from uh, from all sides. Uh, but if that's not good enough for you, why not try the autobiography? It's called Dr. J, the autobiography, of course. It's written by Dr. J in, in concert with uh, Carl Greenfeld. And it's narrated by Dr. J himself, Julia Serving. Uh, and uh, you could use your credit for that book, as well as, like I said, thousands and thousands of other books, not just only in basketball and basketball history, but in a whole host of genres and topics. By all means, give them a try. Why don't you? It's risk-free, for God's sakes. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Yes, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's the link. Uh, and that's where you're going to get your free audiobook download. Again, you can cancel at any time. And once you do download that book for free, and uh, after you cancel it, if you if you choose to do that, it's yours to keep. So you can enjoy uh, in perpetuity for as long as your device lives. Uh, they download a book free and gratis, courtesy of uh, yours truly here at Good Seats Still Available and our friends at Audible. Thank you, Audible. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you uh, joining our conversation once again. So, so you're kind of hinting at, so let's, let's get into this, this sort of first season, right? So television, right? You know, we have to also harken back, right? 1978, you know, television, right? With, with cable very much in its infancy. ESPN hadn't even come about until a year later. Uh, and you're talking about uh, an approach to television that I suspect there were some local franchise uh, approaches to, to figuring out how to get on TV. But you're you're mentioning, frankly, one of the, uh, logical ways at the time to sort of get television exposure, and that is through 
this thing called syndication, right? Uh, the NASL, of course, having gone through some of that with uh, the old TVS television network, uh, uh, you know, the idea of uh, basically selling or, or bartering uh, programming right, to get advertising and local stations and, you know, splitting the revenue that way. H- how does the Hughes television network come into play? Why are they chosen as your sort of distribution partner? And how did you even approach like how to package this? What happened is that the Philadelphia Wings were in a uh, championship game. You know, that's lacrosse. And after we lost the game, <laughs> and, we did, and I got a call from a guy by the name of Bob Wessler. And my secretary said he is, she said that he is the president of uh, CBS Sports. I thought, you know, somebody's put me on. Anyway, I spoke with Bob. Bob says, I like the game of indoor soccer. Okay. I remember, yeah, yeah. He, he liked the game of the course. Okay. When I moved into a soccer, he said, I like that better. What Bob did is he went and he packaged the games. U Sports. First of all, we had Denny Long from Budweiser, who was, God bless him, terrific. We had one of the soda sponsors of Pepsi or Coke. But we had, we, we had our sponsors for the syndication. So when we went out and we gave it to somebody, there were openings to put those in. And there was no, there was no fees. I mean, we didn't want fees. We just wanted to, you know, we wanted the exposure. We couldn't get fees if we wanted to. So that's how it happened. So I'm, a, I'm sorry, let me back up. So I'm a kid in the New York metropolitan area. I'm watching uh, New York Arrows games, I think, on Channel 11. And I, I think it's Terry Lewicki and and, uh, and Kyle Roach Jr. maybe calling a game or two. Um, oh, what a memory you have! Now that's not used. That's John Messiani. So that that was a local broadcast versus Hughes, which was more of a national package. Right, and that was in the second year right. Got it. Okay, so so who's taking these games then? Um, and I guess I'm guessing that Wessler was interested because, if I'm not mistaken which is certainly possible, but I, I, I try to do my research here uh, <laughs> as best as I can. Um, I think CBS, right, having broadcast a number, a handful of outdoor NASL games over the years, even did broadcast one or two of these NASL indoor exhibitions over the years. Maybe that's how he got uh, familiar with it, no? Well, I don't know. You know, uh, I, I became good, good friends with Bob Wilson whenever I went into New York. And he and he and Earl, you know, had a good rapport. And Bob was always on our corner. He always thought that, that this would be a good TV sport. And uh, the fact that he did it before, I don't, I don't recall him. Uh, but I do know one thing: is that he he had a guy named McGill Miller going out and sell sponsorships for us, and that and that was terrific because. What, what what we did is, is he negotiated with Kay, you know, a couple of, so so we had that going for us. And uh, uh you know, it's you know, we're not we're not a football league, we're not a basketball league. This is what we had going for us. And uh uh Bob's going today too. Everybody I tell what is going. Maybe I'm busy luck. 
Well, no, this is part. This is this is partially no. That this is Ed. This is partially why we do these because, in many respects, this is also a bit of a, an oral history, uh, because there's so much uh, of this that uh, is not known and, frankly, should be remembered. And there's a lot of interesting little tidbits and and things that uh, you know have some effect for teams and leagues going forward. But also, you know, uh, sort of to to write, I guess, sort of the uh, the perceptions of of history that maybe have gotten lost along the way. One of which is a question now I'm going to ask you around sort of some of those teams that played in that first year. Um, I, I think it's really interesting because it seems like every one of these teams, these six franchises uh, in this first season of 1978-79 uh, kind of had different approaches to to fielding, uh, you know, a quality team, uh, two of which, from what I remember, is the, the Houston Summit Soccer franchise and the New York Arrows were essentially uh, 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 NASL outdoor teams uh, reconstituted for uh, the uh, uh, from the Houston Hurricane and Rochester Lancers, uh, respectively. Is that right? You're right on. Well, ha- okay. And let me ask if that's correct. How how does the NAS- NASL take to that? I got to think Phil Woosnam's not happy about that. They have no choice. They they didn't want any legal problems. <laughs> let me tell you something. They had a lot of problems. A lot of problems, and Joe Wooters and Wooten had everybody thinking that everything was great, and things weren't great for them, other than the Cosmos. And you know, when the Cosmos came to play in your city, you had to kick back so much money to them. I, I don't know if that was ever made public, but they have who they have back now. The Warner Communications. Yeah, so you're alluding to the fact that uh, that the, especially when Pele came into play, the the idea was that they wanted to sort of spread the promotional wealth, if you will, of the Cosmos. But you're intimating that there was some sort of financial uh, component to that, right? It wasn't like Pele and friends were going to show up uh, to the Team Hawaii game without some kind of, I guess, compensation. I'm that. I'm a, let me use the right word. I'm assuming that that's what they had to do. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, we've heard uh, in not so many words sort of similar, you know, uh, thinking around that kind of stuff, right? In, in some respects, it's almost a, uh, almost like almost a subsidy, right? To, to sort of help, uh, I guess, defray the cost of Pele and some of these these other uh, these other very expensive uh, uh, talents from from abroad. But I, I'm just, it's very interesting to me, given the the origins of the sport of indoor soccer with the NASL in its earliest days. The rebuff, if you will, or the or the perception that uh, they were going to wait a year and do it their way, uh, and yet you've got basically two, uh, uh, you know, uh, pseudonym franchises in your league, uh, populated by players in 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 two NASL teams uh, in the off season. Right, but but the mechanism, they couldn't play indoor soccer because they had losses that were so big. In the outdoor game, what are they going to do? Go indoor, and if you don't promote, and and if you don't uh, advertise, and if you don't, you know, put a quality team in indoor, they, they wouldn't have made it. They they wouldn't have made it, and that's what I used to tell Phil. I said, Phil, look, you know, you have a chance now to develop the American player. The costs are going to be low, okay. I'll get the arenas to work with you on, on some sort of a percentage deal. And you know, don't worry about indoor soccer. Worry, worry about outdoor soccer. 
Joe was, Joe was, how can I put it? Joe was very committed to the NASL. Well, and you can sort of understand, I guess, some of it, right? Because he was there, you know, when the very earliest, even pre-NASL days, right? Was there in the darkest hours when it was down to, what, five teams meant not even that. And uh, in many respects, almost kind of willed it into what ultimately became a 24-team ABC television contract. But, you know, no doubt that the foundation upon all of that, especially as it got more and more national attention, right? Uh, the and, and maybe we should pause at this point and, and sort of go back to your NASL uh, experience because I, I've, we kind of have glossed over a bit of prelude here, right? Because you, you kind of hinted at it before, but maybe we can expand on it just for a few minutes, is your ownership of the uh, Philadelphia Adams uh, in 19, I think it was the 1976 season. And I guess to put it in perspective, and I, I kind of want to know how that happened for you, by the way, um, that, you know, here was a team that, uh, won the championship outdoors in 73 was relatively popular, uh, in the stands, uh, but circa 1976, um, I guess there was an ownership change, right? Is that how you got involved and, and maybe got a sense of maybe how shaky the well, NASL uh, was? Tom McCluskey, uh, owned the team. When did they win it all? Seventy-three or something like that. Yeah, it was nineteen seventy-three when the, their very first season, uh, winning okay. the championship. Yep. Okay, and Tom was looking to buy the Eagles, and um, he decided not to come back to outdoor soccer. You know, look, these people lose money. You know, he decided not to. But the league only wanted Philadelphia. I don't know why. There was no good place to play. There was no, there was nothing. And they went out and they found a group in Mexico in Guadalajara that were going to buy the franchise from Tom or from the league or whatever. And somehow, the guy who who did the marketing from me, his name was Jim Colbert, called me up and he said, would you be interested? I said, I wouldn't put a dime up. Then he called me back. He said, "Would you be interested in operating the team?" I said, well, "You know, I said I, I might be." And I looked into it. <laughs> I go, "Love this, Tom. The players that came here couldn't speak English. Okay, the coach didn't speak English. The players were third division at best. How Phil Woosman let them in the league is beyond me." And, you know, financially, in fact, I had, to, I had to carry them because my name was involved, I think, I guess, for almost half the season. I got my money back. And then Phil went out and he sold it to a group of rock stars. And, and that didn't do anything. You know, it's, uh, look, if you get 10,000 people in a 60,000 seater, uh, facility. It's empty. It's empty. And that was the other good thing about indoor soccer. You, you know, whatever it is, you're on top of the action and it only takes a couple thousand people. So the the, the Adams of the, the Mexican version, I think it's very interesting in that here you are in, in 1976, the bicentennial year of our country. Uh, and right. and ironically, the, the Adams team, having been known, really been, especially with Al Miller and the, the very first couple of years as uh, arguably as as an American as a team you could find and create 
And now all of a sudden, it's this completely different kind of thing that when Philadelphia fans were used to. So that's uh, bizarre, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you how bad it was. They played July 4th, 1976, okay? And Doug Burr came over to me and he says, uh, what, what can I announce for the attendance? I said, 1976? Because <laughs> that's what it was. He says, well, it's closer to 1776. I said, it's your call. <laughs> And that was in Franklin Field, you know, that, that it housed a lot of people. There were there are a lot of things that were done back then. Um, you know, I'm sure that these people, you know, would do would do otherwise. You know, I'm a great people. Anybody with soccer today, and you know, who invest their money, you know, uh, I I root for them. When you talk about Jerry Saperstein, if you talk Tom Mastello. You know, so they're good guys. They're all good guys. They they try to make the game go. Uh, Ron Weinstein. But uh, you have to know Earl Foreman. You know, Earl was, uh, oh, what do you call it? Earl knew that if we put together a good group and we went out to prospective owners, that we would be doing well at. And, and, and it worked, and it worked. All right, so t- take me to that first game, if you remember. Uh, I'm assuming you were there at the Riverfront Coliseum in, in December of uh, of 78. Uh, um, this is the New York Arrows and the Cincinnati Kids, the one-year wonder. And, and Pete Rose, as, as mentioned earlier, was a part owner of that franchise. And, and kicking out the first ball, do you remember anything about either that game or the first couple of games of the league that season, that first season, and and, and and when did you kind of know that you had done it right and maybe were really on to something? Uh, well, I'm in the picture. <laughs> do you have a copy of that picture? I, I do have a copy of that picture. As a matter of fact, I even have a I even had Pete Rose sign a copy of that picture. I, I'm not sure yes. he remembered it. He he did remember, I think, John Luciani. Uh, but other than that, I don't know if he, he really remembered too much more about this. I got this signed about uh, three or four years ago. But, yes, you are in that picture. John Luciani is in that picture. Certainly Earl is in that Earl. picture. Uh, Pete looking pretty pretty sharp in his street clothes. And, and uh, I think most people, the, the expression on their faces is uh, one of kind of wonderment more than anything else. Well, what Pete was negotiating, uh, he was a free agent. Okay. And he was going from city to city with his attorney, Reuven Katz, trying to make a deal. You know, today it's common. And uh, when he went to Philadelphia, I met up with him. And uh, uh, he was great. And I'll tell you somebody else who was great was uh, Johnny Bench. You remember him. <laughs> but uh, now, so I call uh, That was a long time ago. <laughs> But I'm sorry. What was your question? Again? So, uh, g- give me, give us a sense of sort of the the first uh, the first game and the first uh, uh, you know the first year, pretty much. I mean, like, when did you kind of know that you were onto something? Right? This is a, a whole new proposition. I mean, was there ever was there ever a time where you were like, uh, I don't know if this is going to fly, or or when did you know you had lightning in a bottle? Shall we say? After the first season, uh, the good thing about the first season is that we did not play a lot of games. I think we played ten home, ten away. Okay, and the fact that we were on Youth Sports Network, the fact that uh, 
I was contacted by Carol Rosenblum. Um, you know that story, right? Uh, I know that story, but I think our audience needs to hear it, too. Am I on live with the audience? Yeah, well, not live, but yes, we're recording it live. Yes, go right ahead. Okay. Uh, I, I got a phone call from Carol Rosenblum, and uh, he said she knows what I'm putting together. And he was from, from my era, Philadelphia, you know, the suburbs. And he wondered if I would come out there and, uh, and meet with him. And by the way, just for our audience, Carol Rosenblum is the then owner of the Los Angeles Rams of the NFL. Yes. And I went out there and I met with Carol. And um, he did not like outdoor soccer. But he loved indoor soccer. And he has some ideas that will help on I. And he's going to get back to me. In this meeting, his son walks in and he introduces his son. And, you know, this is the love of his life and everything else. And I thought it was great because I'm very close with my sons. A couple of weeks later, I, I fly out here again, and I'm with Carol and Al Davis. Al Davis hired a big blackboard, and he had all the cities that have the arenas. He gave names to the teams, colors to the teams. He did all the homework. He put together a league on this blackboard. And uh, the only thing is that, you know, that Earl and I were doing well at this time, and we weren't about to. You know, change unless it was for the betterment of uh, of the game at all. With that, they're talking, and I realize what 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 they want me for. What they want me for is Pete Rozell had it where you could not own another professional team. In other words, if you owned the Philadelphia Eagles, you couldn't own another sports team, and so on. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to buy the whole league, put his people in there, and show Roselle who's boss. <laughs> so Carol Rosenblum saw saw this idea of indoor soccer, like what you guys were right. doing, and had his own ideas, not only to, to do it, but to kind of stick it to the NFL as well and, and maybe open the door to other sports ownership. Yes. Yeah. But he, he wanted all football teams in there. The most amazing thing is that uh, while, we're, while we're talking, not negotiating, nothing to negotiate, while we're talking, <laughs> Carol drowns, you know, Carol dies. And uh, and the son that was really, you know, loved and all that, he, he left everything to his, to his wife, Georgia. <laughs> so I don't think that Steve got anything. And Steve was, a, at that time, a nice young man. But... Uh, but that were my days with Carol and, and with Al. So what do you think, I mean, aside from, obviously, that tragedy, what, what do you think might have happened had that conversation continued between you and Carol Rosenblum and Al Davis regarding their potential Nothing. involvement? Nothing. Nothing. You, you know, the one thing that Earl and I knew is that as long as we're involved and it's our idea and it's our capital and everything else, we're not going to give it away. Because to them, it would be, uh, you know, it, it, it would be a stepchild three times over. Did you ever did you ever worry that maybe uh, uh, Davis and Rosenblum may have uh, uh, gone to one of those other entities that was 
trying to do indoor soccer or maybe even the NASL? Uh, or was this just a you conversation with them? We were too far down the road with an organization for anybody to uh, to push us to start. See, it, it's like anything else. It's like it, it, you know, our business. If you own the ground, right, you have first rights to the building that's going on that ground, right? As far as we're concerned, we had everything. No, Nobody's going to come in and take the seeds that we planted because they couldn't do it. And the big thing, Jim, is that we had the arenas because one arena told the other arena. And, 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 and we had and, and we had a very, very good rapport with all the arenas around the country. Okay, so how how's the promotion working? And, and give, me, give me a sense of the first year or, or second year because in the second year, right, you, you added... Oh my God, five teams losing only one Cincinnati, but adding five more teams. I mean, that's an amazing amount of growth going from six to 11 teams in just one year. The NASL finally coming into play, but give us a sense of like how these games are being promoted, what the uptake is, how consumers are reacting to it, uh, the media paying attention. I mean, uh, to say it was meteoric or or at least uh, getting on people's radars pretty quickly is probably an understatement, right? Right. No, it, it was, uh, but by the way, just as a side note, the arenas that supported us originally are not there anymore. Ever realize that? Well, exception, exception with the, the exception of the Nassau Coliseum, which uh, is, has been refurbished, right? Um, and is still around, but, uh, yeah, the, the majority of them not, no longer with us. No, for sure. Yeah. It's a, there used to be a ballpark here as Frank Sinatra used to sing. That, that's the truth. Even the spectrum isn't there anymore in the summit. Yeah. But, I, you know, Sports Illustrated did, did an article on us. We got a, got a lot of good publicity. And uh, we knew that, you know, as long as we handle it right, you know, it's sure to stay. And, and, and remember one thing, basketball 40 years ago, unfortunately, we're having the problems. And, uh, uh, you know, we felt that that's where maybe we'll fit in, even though it didn't happen. Yeah, b- basketball, there were a number of teams in the NBA that were not doing well, and, and attendance was, and there were some other sort of drug issues and all kinds of stuff going on. And, and here you were, this sort of brand new sport, the Americanization of such. Well, you know what? Let's also talk about, though, the, the presentation of these games, right? Because in many respects, you the MISL gained a big time reputation for being um, not only about the sport, which itself was exciting, high scoring, uh, more Americanized, so to speak, both in terms of appeal to the fans, but also players on the field being more American born. Um, But also the it almost you became the masters of this sort of entertainment kind of spectacle component to it. You know, the big laser show and the, 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 the mirror disco balls and the thumping music and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, that Sports Illustrated article that uh, Frank DeFord wrote, a very definitive one, uh, you know, was one part sort of glowing and, and admiring and, and another part kind of like a bit, uh, uh, you know, eyebrow raised and, and sneering a bit at perhaps uh, the showbiz element of stuff maybe being a little bit more than the actual sport of the stuff. So so maybe a little bit on the presentation of the games. How does that come about? Because uh, you certainly got a reputation for that fairly early on as a as a as a league as a league. 
So there's a gentleman by the name of Tim Iwicki, who's been very successful. And Tim was a kid, I think he was 21, 22, and he was uh, hired by St. Louis. And they came up with the idea, you know, the smoke and the music. Uh, you know, I used to get a lot of complaints with the league office. How can I play? How can we okay music during the game? Oh, you know, it's entertainment. It's entertainment. And the players are terrific. You know, it's uh, even today that, that the, you know, they're out there in the community and in soccer and all that. So we got very, very lucky. It's different. Indoor soccer is very different. Uh, where indoor soccer made some mistakes is, and they're all nine at this point, had no, no, no say. They play too many games. They play too many games. Football plays, what was it, eight home, eight away. That's all it should be. I think that's what we're doing now. Because each game means something. And each game is a show. Um, and, you know, I was watching the San Diego, San Diego game the other night. And it's terrific. You know, the smoke and the music and the lights. and It's a show business. Tell me about the NASL at this point and, um, and your, uh, the juxtaposition between the indoor game and the outdoor game. I mean, obviously the purists. I mean, the NASL was still quite, you know, was sort of kind of riding an upward trend, certainly, for especially a number of different franchises, right? But... Um, you know, as the years ran went on, right, this indoor game uh, became actually uh, more of the, the center of interest and excitement, and the outdoor game, for whatever reason, seemed to wane. Um, we, we've had a number of conversations where, where uh, there have been teams that, uh, in the NASL, that were playing indoors that were drawing better than they were outdoors. So clearly, yeah. you were on to something, and I'm just curious as to how did you, when did you see sort of see that tipping point that maybe this... The pro soccer thing was maybe going more your way than the outdoor NASL way. Was it immediate, or was it after a couple of years, or what? Well, you know, Earl and I never looked at it that way because it's uh, Sonny. I'm going to quote Sonny Werbin. Um Sonny Werbin, I never forget sitting in his office, we're talking, and the same thing came up, and Sonny said, "You know, if there's a movie theater on a certain street, and another movie theater comes," he said, "That's good." He's saying it's good for business, right? So, you know, outdoor soccer didn't take anything away, and the indoor didn't take anything away. You know, it's soccer. Uh, today, uh, soccer is outdoor doing fantastic. They're building their own stadiums, which they always needed. Uh, the quality of play is good. The ownership is great. It's amenity. And, you know, it has its niche, and it's a good niche. We're into soccer is more for uh, for the kid to play soccer on Saturday morning and he wants his parents to, to take him to the game Saturday night. It, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a fun sport. It's a fun event. Let me go back to TV for a second. Um, we kind of hinted at it a little bit in uh, in our, our, our couple of calls together, but what about the USA cable network, right? Because... You know, in in the late 70s, early 1980s, right, the USA Cable Network was uh, perhaps the most viewed of uh, the handful, very small handful of national cable television networks that were even on cable, this sort of fledgling new pay television thing, right? Um, It almost feels to me like the um, 
as cable television started to get its sea legs in the early 80s, it was almost exquisitely timed uh, for your uh, uh, growth as a league going into, what, third, fourth seasons in the early 1980s. Right. Oh, I think uh, I'm going to answer that. You know, you go to a league meeting, and even though Earl and I established everything and... (laughs) from the rules of the game and everything. And we were hands-on. Somebody sits there and says, we have to have the TV committee. Well, what do they know about a TV committee? Okay? And and this is what ruined it for us. You know, I think I mentioned that. It's, uh, it's, it's not good to turn things over to people who don't have the experience. And this is what happened. How does the USA Network in particular come into play? Um, why them? How uh, cable television? Uh, was How much money was involved, if any? No, there was no money. Bob Wilson put the deal together. And they were in their infancy, you know, and we certainly were. And the idea is is that we knew that we, we needed exposure. You know, if there's going to be big dollars, it'll be down the road. But we needed exposure. And... What happened is that we're sitting in there and somebody said, I'll be chairman of the TV committee. Well, the answer was is that we were fine with USA. But once we told them we wanted money, they wanted ratings. And we tried to explain that, you know, to the directors, but they didn't understand it. You know, once you have to give ratings, you know, it's a different ballgame. So that first couple of years on USA was was largely a... Uh, was it a barter arrangement? Was it, you know, how was, what were the economics of it, right? I mean, you were filling programming time for them with live Friday night games, right? I'll tell you what was terrific, um, Tim. They used to come in, if we were playing in Buffalo, they would fly our announcers into Buffalo. The Buffalo team would have a luncheon and we were announced we're going to be on national TV at night. They gave us such a great credibility and they paid the production, and they paid the announcers. I mean, you know, it wasn't a free ride. But uh, until you could show that you have ratings, you know, it's not going to happen. Yeah, and USA was co- was covering, you know, NHL games and NBA games, and uh, it, w- it was almost sort of a smaller, I guess, in some respects, version, at least on the evenings and the weekends of uh, of, of what ESPN was doing, right? And um, but you know, you, you look back at some of those games, and I obviously remember them quite vividly as a kid. But you know, Al Troutwood, Kyle Rowe Jr. calling those games every week. I mean, and including some of those cra- I mean, some of those playoff yeah. games. I mean, that that tournament that you had in St. Louis that second year um, was just unbelievable with all overtime and shootout games. And I mean, you you could not build more excitement, and it did. It did come across on the TV screen. I, I you got to give credit to a, a young Al Troutwick and, and, and Kyle wrote because, uh, and the production quality, because the, the games still hold up. They're very, very compelling to still watch. Uh, and you can feel the excitement in those broadcasts. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Can I tell you something? They were great announcers. Don't forget that they're announcing a game that's new, right? You, you know, it's new. It, it's a new product that they're announcing, and that's difficult, too. And, uh, but I remember those games. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a great story. Is that uh, Budweiser is given the, the MVP award, and the MVP award goes to Steve's uncle. 
And Denny Long, who's been terrific for us, is supposed to go down at halftime of the game and present it to Steve's uncle. However, St. Louis is getting killed, right? So Denny Long did something very smart. He found me and told me to go down and get the award so I could get booed. But, uh, you know, there's so many things that happened back then. So we were really uh, ahead of ourselves. But it worked out well. By the way, Denny Long was great for yours. Yeah, and and Denny Long, we we talked about with... uh... Uh, with our uh, our new pal Bob Carpenter a couple of weeks back, who uh, who did a lot of announcing uh, for the Steamers and Bud Sports, right? And Denny Long being the uh, the guy behind Bud Sports, right? And and, and that Bob even went so far as to say that that in his estimation, uh, in many respects, a lot of outdoor as well as indoor soccer may not have been possible to the extent it was successful without Bud Sports and 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 Denny Long's involvement, because uh, without it, it might have been a much different story. Oh, do you know what it was like when you're forming a league, you're forming a new sport, and you're telling them that one of the sponsors is Budweiser? You know, was fantastic. He, he was really fantastic. And a visionary, right, if you look back on it, right? I mean, and even, I think, even responsible for uh, the initial uh, relationship with ESPN back when it was getting started. Uh, in essence, is in, ensuring Budweiser, you know, a, a substantial role for not a whole lot of dough uh, on the bet that this thing was going to actually be significantly uh, important to ESPN. Um, he once told me, and I quote this all the time, he says, the difference between outdoor and indoor is between chess and checkers. Okay? Outdoor is a chess game, indoor is a checker game. And, uh, you know, I, I quoted him. He, he was a good guy. That's a great quote. I've never heard that before, but that is that is probably quintessential. Um, all right. Well, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do want to, uh, you know, I, we could go on and on about sort of the, the, the heady days of the MISL, and, and perhaps we'll do that in another conversation if you're willing. But I, I do want to get to um, the New Jersey Rockets, okay? Um, this is uh, circa 1981 uh, this is after, I guess this would be the beginning of the, th- the fourth season of the MISL. Um, and it's a, sp- it's a very special part of the conversation for me because, uh, as I was joking with you on one of our phone calls prior, uh, you're talking to one of the uh, uh, the owners of season tickets for the New Jersey Rockets. Uh, we had six season tickets, my dad and, and my my family and I. Wow. And, um, and we were excited, at least I was, uh, about the MISL. Uh, coming into northern New Jersey, where I was. So I want to hear some, maybe from you uh, the story of, of how do you, why are you running that franchise? Was that part of your deal maybe that uh, you uh, when you were starting the league that you would ultimately have a franchise for yourself? And why New Jersey and, and, and all that maybe? How does New Jersey sort of come about? And, and we'll get into sort of maybe the season uh, along the way, but I'm just curious as to how do you, how do you become an owner versus uh, deputy commissioner of the league then with this team? The Meadowlands Arena was supposed to be, what's the word, Mecca? It was supposed to be the number one arena. Forget the garden, forget the spectrum. That was going to be, you know, if if, if we could get in the door there, that's New York, that's New Jersey. You know, I don't have to sell you on it. The deal we made is that 
beginning itself, use all the all the politics, you know, all, all their muscle to try to keep us out. Where we ended up having to put up a letter of credit for the whole season. I didn't think the Cosmos were coming in. Or, you know, uh, players were calling me like uh, Luis Alberto and so on, you know, who wanted to play for the Rockets. However, Phil, you know, told people that, you know, if, if the Rockets are successful, it's not going to help in the NASL. So they decided that they're going to play indoor. So, so they cut us on dates and everything else. I mean, we were we were playing uh, the giant. You know, it's uh, <laughs> we weren't, weren't playing the Fort Lauderdale Strikers. We were playing the New York Cosmos, and uh, it didn't work for us, and it didn't work for them. So, who announced that they were going to play? So, obviously, the MISL right was the leading purveyor of indoor soccer, right? The NASL had come in and out and in again. And and the Cosmos famously had not played any real indoor soccer at all, any of those uh, things along the way, right? So it was a real debate, I guess, internally, like if every team outdoor should be playing indoor. And I'm sure Phil was sort of vacillating between that. But so the chronology, did, did you guys announce the Rockets franchise first and then the Cosmos or... Had they announced first yeah. and then, okay, so you announced first and then ha- when did the Cosmos and the NASL sort of say they were going to play? So it, it was pretty close to the season. And you weren't going to, you know, they had Giorgio playing for them. And, and um, Phil Wisman was always at war with me. And I don't know, as, as an individual, I liked him. I mean, you know, you know I admired him for what he did. But he was, you know, he was fighting me in my cell. You know, he, he didn't want to lose. He didn't want to lose soccer in this country. It worked out so good that the second year, neither one of us wanted. Well, so you guys did have the head start, right? Because the first game, I think, it was uh, November thirteenth, nineteen eighty-one. Just happened to be my birthday that year, so uh, I will uh, tell you that. And it was a sold-out arena, and uh, so you guys had the head start, right? Um, was that house papered? Because uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think you came close to that kind of that kind of crowd. That seventeen thousand eight hundred or so uh, again. Uh, but it was a hell of a game and a hell of a debut for sure. I remember it well, as far as being papered or not. That that I don't remember. I'm sure a lot of it could could have been. But uh, Earl and I really saw it. I went there. Let me answer that the question. I went there. Because I thought that I, if I could make it there, the league will make it anywhere. You know, just to sell the franchise, I, I, I needed to be there. And I got a whole, if it was Philadelphia, we'd sell out every game because I know the press, I know the sponsors. I didn't know anybody there. I didn't know anybody. I, I, I was way over my head, uh, way over my head. And the Cosmos didn't make it there. So, you know, it was, and guess what? The Nets and um, the Devils and everybody else. No one, tell me why, what is wrong? Is it the location? Well, it's also, you know, it's it's an interesting question, right? Because it also is probably the media market of New York, right? Because New Jersey is and is not. Part, part of that market, depending on how you look at 
the demographics and the folks that you're trying to attract, right? So I guess for you guys, right, you have a very successful, well, maybe not attendance-wise, uh, the New York Arrows, right? Obviously exceedingly successful the first three years of the league, you know, winning all the championships on Long Island. Uh, you've had a dalliance with uh, Madison Square Garden, at least an all-star game, but but never in the city. So, you know, in some respects, you've got New Jersey on one side and Long Island on the other, but not in the center of the city. You know, I, I suspect that that's always been kind of the issue with any of the New Jersey franchises and the Long Island franchises, right? They They are part of New York, yet they're really only one part of New York because, you know, it's very difficult, as I knew growing up in northern New Jersey, right? Very difficult to convince my parents and me to, to to drive, you know, an hour and a half all the way across New York City to go to Long Island to games, which I <laughs> luckily I, I was able to convince them to do um, and vice versa. Right. I, I, people on Long Island coming to New Jersey for games, you know, it's got to be unless it's the Islanders playing the Devils, you know, maybe you can make that trip. Right. But uh, and I, I got to think Hartford, probably the same kind of thing. Right. You're part of a mega megalopolis. Uh, but then in many respects, you know, when you're trying to get people to come to games, you're kind of not. I don't know. It seems like a, a very interesting market, always has been. Um, and I, I can't imagine how how you would fight off uh, uh, not only the Cosmos, but also sort of the, you know, ha- you can't buy just ads on television in New Jersey, right? Not in the New York metro area, right? So publicity must have been a real challenge, too. Oh, my God. You know what I realized? <laughs> There's no market. You know, it's so widespread. You know, how, how do you spend money? To bring you back money when, when it's like that, it, 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 it's impossible. But uh, look, it's like everything else. I gave it a try. Um, you know, I don't know if the the cosmos, you know, really hurt us as much as the market. The market was just not there. Yeah, I, I, I haven't gone to a couple of Cosmos games, obviously, having made my uh, season ticket lot with the Rockets, right? Because I, obviously, I think most aficionados would have recognized that the, the higher quality indoor play was going to be from the MISL. Um, the, the, yeah, I, I, I think most Cosmos fans kind of saw the effort as largely half-hearted. I mean, Giorgio Canaglia scoring seven goals in their first game when they debuted about a month after you guys did uh, certainly gained right. attention, right? But uh, as I think I remember a couple of sort of the initial uh, beat writers sort of comparisons, right? I mean, the, the level of play in the MISL was it showed they were you were two or three years ahead of where the NASL was certainly the Cosmos, right? I mean, it was a much slower pace that the that the Cosmos were playing and they're, you know, they were adjusting to this foreign literally sport uh, that they none of them had really been uh, playing before versus the MISL. Well, you know what? When I think of the NASL. I still think of 24 teams, 18, did not grow 18,000 a game. <laughs> you can't survive. You can't survive. And for and them to go in and think that because of the Cosmos, that they're going to sell, it didn't work. It didn't work. And, uh, you know, bottom line is thank you for being a season ticket holder. Oh, my God. It was, I, we had lots of fun, had a lot of fun, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, sadly, a bunch of empty seats, but, uh, you know, some some great games yeah. and, and you had you had a convert in me for sure. All right. So let, let me ask you sort of this uh, maybe one last question or so. And, and um, I, I want to thank you for for taking time from what I hope is a sunny day down in Florida uh, to, to regale me and some of this stuff. Um, so, 
you know, I, I sense that after the Rockets uh, situation, you kind of sort of stepped away from the game a bit and, and you know, almost sort of a, an emeritus kind of thing, kind of, you know, look back fondly and, and proudly. But what, what so the 80s and the early 90s, why and I know Earl was still involved for, for a period of time as well. What um, what in your estimation, why did the league kind of peter out in the early 90s? I mean, it clearly had a lot of momentum in the early 80s. Uh, the economy maybe had something to do with it. The early 80s were not necessarily the best in terms of macroeconomic terms in the United States. Uh, television certainly had come into its own. You had a lot of successes, a lot of different markets. Why do you think it didn't uh, sort of last beyond the early 90s? Uh, were there other things that sort of, in your estimation, why did it not sort of continue uh, given all of its uh, amazing head start? Carolyn Bus came into the league and um... – Philly thought that we we ought to be unionized and put a cap on everything. You know, I think that's what basketball had. But you can't put a cap on a million two when you're not close to a million two. You know, it's, and there's different teams at different levels. And uh, Earl and I work with a guy by the name of Remember Ed Garvey. <laughs> Of course, Ed Garvey was uh, not only the NFL uh, Players Association representative, but also uh, the guy who actually got the NASL Players Association together and and maybe uh, right. almost submerged the league in 78, 79 himself, right? And the answer is like, and they, in, in other words, to cover, they thought that they're just going to play more games. And that was wrong. I mean, right now, if you look at the, Major Arena Soccer League, they played 20 games, home and away total. Okay. That's what it should be. The salaries are where the guys can make a living, but it's not above and beyond. Okay. It, it, it's a business. Okay. And you can't just put yourself in a position where you can't, uh, where, where you can't, you know, stay within, look. You don't mind losing some money, but some money is not a lot of it. If you're going to lose a lot of money, you got problems. Just as a side note. Yeah. So are you? So okay. you, are you saying that that the that the unionization effort was the was the impetus to to push towards more games? Or I I, I would yeah. think that that was more owner. Well, shall we say greed to make more money off of more dates? Well, well, you happen to be right, and it didn't work out, and it didn't work out. You, you know, it's funny. Um, it, it, after the Rockets, Bob Bussler introduced me to a guy by the name of Jimmy Snyder. Jimmy the Greek. I'm sure you heard of him, right? Sure, Jimmy the Greek, of course. Right. And I figured out that if there could be a line, you know, a betting line, that it would really help everything, Okay. So, you know, Jimmy wanted so many dollars. He was like in 81 newspapers. So I said, Jimmy, do me a favor. We're in playoffs. Put the playoffs in your paper. Don't charge anything. Let's see if it works. And then I'll go to the university. I wasn't with the league. And I'll go to bat for you. So Jimmy agreed. In fact, I think Doug Berg was, or Mike Winchell was doing the lines, right? And all of a sudden, you know, we're in the papers. 
And that, then there's a league meeting right after the playoffs. And everybody's taking credit for putting the line in the paper, okay? And I made a presentation, and uh, Joe Robbie said, there's no way I'm going to pay that son of a gun to die, you know? You know, of course, he had the Dolphins, right? He says, you know, if they, if they want to put a line on the noise, that's their business. I'm not paying for it. So I was never able to establish that. But uh, he was one of the best guys, of, you know, in what I'm doing you know, over the years. He, he was really, uh, well, I would just say he was a real, he was a real person. Yeah, I liked him a lot. Well, also you were you were ahead of your time then with that betting line idea, right? But but in, in many respects, that's also more credibility and legitimacy relative to other pro sports. Well, why? I mean, given that, and, and makes them and makes them watch the game on TV. Makes them watch the game on TV. There's more of a rooting interest, uh, arguably before fantasy sports and all that stuff. But so why do you, why do you think then? So w- was it because of the unionization effort? What do you think it was? I mean, I just uh, you. Was it the, the competition from that sort of minor league AISA? Was it uh, just, you know, was it player salaries getting out of control? Why do you think that we don't have a, I know we had a, another run at it, but why did the MISL kind of just kind of end sort of the, in the early 90s? I think everything you just mentioned, I think that, uh, you know what happens? Somebody goes and they buy a team, they buy a franchise. Unless they're going to put together an organization, a PR man, a marketing man, a sponsor sales. It doesn't come automatically. It's a, you know, even the Eagles that unfortunately, they got somebody for everything. And I just don't think that the clubs were, were operating uh, like they should. Plus the fact that, that they went up to 22 games <laughs> at home. Too much it of a was, good thing. It's not that kind of a following. It's not that kind of a problem that you could play, you know. Uh, if, if, if you could have eight Saturday nights, that's all you need. All right. So, uh, last question then. Um, we we know that the uh, the major uh, arena soccer league exists uh, today. Arguably, it's uh, depending on the franchise and the market that you're in. It's it's more professional than than not. Uh, I think San Diego, uh, keeping on that soccer's tradition, probably a little bit more. Uh, you know, straightforward and, and, and truly pro versus, say, uh, some of the other franchises like in, uh, you know, southern in southern Texas, et cetera, where the arenas are not even that. They're kind of more indoor soccer facilities, uh, rec facilities and stuff. So I, I guess do you ever do you ever see uh, a, a, the top tier sort of white hot excitement of the MISL back in your day ever coming back? Or, or do you think that because of now the rise of outdoor soccer? With the MLS and and just frankly all the other sports and uh, uh, opportunities for entertainment, uh, do you think that that sort of major league, if you will, ship has sailed for indoor soccer? You know, I think that when we created it, it was new. It was exciting. Uh, we were the underdog that, that you know that was becoming successful. I think today is, uh, you know, the other sports with TV has become so big. And uh, I think where they're at right now, and, you know, maybe they could get rid of five teams that they don't need. I don't know. But I think that they're keeping indoor soccer alive. 
And I think all the youngsters that are playing the game are keeping it alive. And it doesn't have to be the NBA or the NHL because those <laughs> those salaries are off the wall. Okay. But this but there's a niche for everything. And you know, I think that uh, I think they found their niche, and they're, and they're keeping it alive. And you know, yeah, I I watch it on their website. God, if you told me forty years ago I'd be watching games on the website, I would say, "What are you talking about?" But uh, but I think that that's where it's at. And uh, you know, as long as the kids are playing, you know, I'm really happy. I am really happy. Um, because really, it's not that I developed the league, Tim. I developed the sport, and uh, you know that's more. That's probably more difficult. But the kids love the game. You know, they love the game, and they they know how to play it. All right. Here's my last question, and I promise. So, we uh, we just saw last fall the uh, the reopening of the uh, National Soccer Hall of Fame. Uh, in uh, in uh, Frisco, Texas, and um, I, this has always been sort of a, a, an interesting sort of uh, sore spot, I guess, for me. And I'm wondering, maybe uh, if for you too. But um, I, I, where is sort of the the history of of the MISL in all of pro soccer's you know storyline here in the United States? Right? I you know there it almost feels to me. And I want to put words in your mouth, but it feels to me that the sort of indoor game uh, has not sort of been, I guess, in my mind, sort of given due, due credit uh, for its role in in the sort of rich tableau of soccer in this country. Um, I, I, do you agree? I mean, it almost feels to me like the MISL is can be looked upon as an asterisk when you look at, say, MLS and uh, and it's uh, a portrayal, I guess, of the history of soccer. And, and I, I think it's really hard to kind of deny that, especially in the 1980s. The MISL was literally and figuratively kind of the only real pro soccer game in town. Uh, and to kind of not really recognize that is a kind of a kind of silly to me. What it needs is people like you. <laughs> That's why I, I really appreciate what you're doing. You know, it's, um, it, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. There's an indoor soccer hall of fame. And we're having a reunion, by the way. Uh, talk to Doug Robot. I'd love to see you there in uh, Vegas uh, right after Memorial Day, you know, with, with all the old uh, players and the press and everything else. So there are people that are keeping it alive, and I'm very grateful to them. Uh, but, uh, you know, this conversation is just, for me, it's been terrific. I'll tell you why. I. I'm going to write a book. I need someone to write it with. <laughs> but I really want to put everything that we discuss into a book. So somehow, you know, it's uh, it's documented. You know, I would give all money to charity. But I would like to see everything documented, you know, and for generations to come. And can, you know who for... For for the player who played in the MISL, you know, and for his kids and his grandchildren, it's so important. And I just hope it happens. 
Well, you can't say that wasn't interesting, right? I mean, just the stories of the NASL and the MISL and, and the relationship that could have been. I, Who knew? I didn't know any of that stuff. Um, that's why we do these uh, chats. I uh, I thank uh, tremendously, Ed, for for taking all that time to, to kind of go back and the the, or, the origin story, if you will, of the MISL is fascinating to me. And of course, I'm always interested in the New Jersey Rockets having uh, having sat through most, most of uh, their uh, almost full season uh, as well. And it was uh, interesting for me as well. And I hope you uh, enjoyed learning more about that franchise and uh, plenty more of that to come uh, with uh, the upcoming MISL 40th uh, reunion coming up uh, as we sort of hinted at uh, during our conversation you want to find out more about that that's in late may uh and that's being put together by our uh our friend doug verb who uh, along with tom meredith was uh were instrumental in uh, getting us connected to ed so we thank both of them for that but if you want to find out more about the uh, 40th uh reunion coming up you can follow uh the uh the antics uh, on uh, Twitter at MISL40, the number four zero, MISL40, at MISL40 on Twitter. Uh, and you can also uh, email Doug directly uh, at uh, MISL4040 reunion at gmail.com, MISL40 reunion, all one word, at gmail.com. And again, that's coming up in late May, the MISL 40th uh, reunion. Uh, and uh, I hope to see not only Ed. Uh, and Doug and Tom Meredith and, and a whole bunch of other folks from the MISL, but maybe you, some of our listeners out there as well. I uh, hopefully could be a part of the uh, proceedings, maybe a couple of interviews and uh, hopefully certainly some episodes to come out of all of that. We want to thank uh, you for listening and uh, uh, and recommending uh, more uh, uh, in uh, investigation into the MISL. We're happy to find uh, Ed and, and have those conversations. And we always love when you uh email us or give us some some love on uh, social media or whatever and uh, if you want to send us a note of uh, what you like and maybe what you'd like to see more of uh, or interview topics or maybe even some uh, su- other suggestions uh, you can find us at uh, on email at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com of course you can find a link to our uh, our email on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com you can just uh, search up uh, this episode or any other episode for god's sakes we're over 100 already if you can believe it uh, and uh, you can follow us on social media. You'll find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, you'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, we're on Facebook somewhere. You'll find a page to, uh, devoted to us there. Uh, and uh, geez, what else? You can sign up for our newsletter on our website, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. You can do that too. And, um, you know, I don't know. There's a multi- multitude of ways to sort of stay in contact with us. And we appreciate your doing so. And of course, please, 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 if you like what you hear, by all means, go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever, Stitcher, whatever you listen, wherever you listen. Uh, if you can rate and review the show in those places, plural, by all means, go do it. Uh, especially if they're really good reviews. We appreciate that, too. Uh, the cheapest, uh, least expensive way that you can show support for this show is by giving us some love in the uh, in those ratings and reviews sections. And uh, that'll help other people like you find this show and uh, keep more of them coming for sure. Uh, we thank you for that, and we thank Jerry Payne and Podfly Productions for helping us put our uh, our episode together, as he does each and every week. And uh, if you want to find out more about how you too can do podcasting uh, in a uh, as most professional way possible, by all means, check them out. Podfly Productions. That's Podfly dot net. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. 
Uh, God knows what topic, but uh, it'll sure be interesting. That's for sure. Until then, uh, take care.